sure I have this in order. Yeah. Okay, so today we are going to go over the fruit of the Spirit of goodness. And so to get started, uh, we're going to spend some time in prayer together. So uh, I'll ask you to do the same thing that I've asked you to do the last couple of weeks. So I'll give you a chance to uh, pray to the Lord uh, directly and prepare your own hearts um, in response to His Word. And then ask you to pray for me, and then I'll close some prayer. So um, let's go ahead and pray. Um, take a moment to uh, ask the Lord for His help. Please take a minute to pray for me that the Lord would use me and that I'll be faithful. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for um, all of the hearts and all the faces that are here, Lord. Um, people who you have rescued and redeemed for yourself. The people you're doing a work in, Lord, that they would come on a Lord's Day and gather together to worship you, um, to hear your word, um, to build each other up in love and encourage one another. Lord, we're just so thankful for the work that you've done for us. Um, all that you're doing in our lives, Lord, the hope that we have in you. Lord, I ask for this morning, we ask for your help, um, the help of your spirit to work in our hearts and our minds, Lord. Um, I am weak and powerless to affect change in their lives and weak and frail um, in following you myself. And so we ask for your help, Lord. We have a great need of you. And so we ask that you come and apply your word to our hearts in a powerful way. Um, and that you would change us into the image of your Son, for your glory, and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, agenda for today, same structures we've been going through. Uh, we're going to define goodness. We're going to look at the fruit of goodness in the life of Christ, and then we're going to meditate together and discuss goodness in the life of the Christian. So, I'll begin this the same way we did a couple weeks ago. I'm going to give you five minutes or so to personally write down on a piece of paper or digitally your best de definition of goodness. So we'll kind of get started on an um, early Sunday morning with a time change, get some, some brain juices going, thinking about goodness. What do you think goodness is?
two minutes. Okay, so let's hear some answers from some brave souls. What do you guys think? How would you define goodness? What is goodness? upright, or that which is right and pleasing in God's sight, and then as pertaining to God, referring to his own moral perfection and righteousness. Very good. Other answers? I, I think of it more as being a state of being, and not acts of goodness. Like, you can be kind, you can be loved, and you can be joyful, but goodness is more of a value um, like if you think of it on a metric scale, you would say this is poor or this is good, right? Like we think of, we always value things as being good or bad. And so I think of it very much on a, on a scale where you're defining goodness. And in, in this sense, we're talking about moral goodness or excellence um, versus the lack thereof. Other thoughts? Okay, so this is going to be about the most straightforward definition uh, ever. Um, Agistosune um, is the Greek word, and it is a noun which signifies the moral quality by the adjective agathos. So when we think about agathos being the adjective, it would describe something as being good. When we talk about the noun, we're talking about possessing that quality, what Chase was just talking about. Um, and so that's the way that the Greek, the, the Greek word that Paul uses here, that's the sense in which he's using that moral quality. Um, and so Noah was right in line with um, what I found. Um, the way the Bible talks about it um, is that it's morally honorable, um, that it's pleasing to God. Um, so obvious, an easy way to think about it obvious contrast, wickedness and evil, doing what is contrary to the will of God, doing what's morally dishonorable, right? Um, 
think of other synonyms of like righteousness, uh, holiness, um, other synonyms that the, the Bible might use. Um, so, when we look at goodness in the life of Christ, um, we look at four different things here. So the first thing is we're going to start thinking about this category of goodness. We're going to begin with thinking about how God is good, how the Bible teaches us that God is good. So we clearly see from Scripture that God has that moral quality of being good. In fact, we could say that God himself defines goodness. He is the definition of good. He is the fountainhead of all good. He is the source of all goodness. And we see this very early on, right, in Genesis 1. Um, we see that when God creates the world and all things come into being, um, that is characterized by being good. When all these things are made, they're not wicked, they're not evil, um, they're not chaotic, but they're good. Um, that, that is a natural product, extension of the Lord's own goodness, right? When he does things, he does them good. He does them wonderfully. Um, and then as we go along, move along in the biblical narrative, another early episode that we see um, the Lord's goodness is in Exodus 33. So when Moses requests, show me your glory, um, does anybody remember the Lord's response when, when Moses prays that prayer? Lord, show me your glory. Um, how does he respond? Does he say, okay, I will make my refulgence pass before you? Does he say, I'll make my splendor pass before you? No, he says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. So I think that's really interesting. The Lord assumes a connection, a correlation between his goodness and his glory. And so we see that his um, goodness is not something that's external to God. Um, rather, it's one of his core attributes. So we could say that it's intrinsic to him. He's morally pure in such a way that if you want to see him, if you were to perceive his glory, um, we could say that you would see his goodness pass before you. Those things are inseparable. Um, James continues this line of thinking in chapter 1. Um, remember um, his points there that God is not good, not evil. He does not himself tempt anyone. He cannot be tempted by evil. Um, so first we see that God is good and not evil. And second, we see that all goodness comes from God, that all good things come from our Heavenly Father. So um, moving on, then we come to Jesus. Um, Jesus identifies himself with the goodness of God is the second thing we're looking at. So when we look at, for example, in Mark 10, 17 through 18, we have that young man who comes up and calls Jesus good teacher. And this was a provocative statement for him to say that to Jesus because that was a deep-rooted truth in, in um, Judaism that man is not good and only God is good. And so this young man comes up and or this man comes up and says to Jesus, "Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus asks him a question. And the reason why he asks this question is not to say, "Well, hold on there." please don't identify me as being God, but rather to make that man think. That question is designed to make him think about that connection that he just made. That in order for him to call Jesus good, which is accurate, um, the reason why that is an accurate statement is because Jesus himself is God. And of course, Jesus himself makes that claim explicitly in John 10.30 when he says, I and the Father are one. And so Jesus has that, ex that same core attribute of being good. He's characterized by that same goodness 
of God, he himself being God. Um, the third thing we want to look at is this idea of Jesus being the new Adam. So when we come to Romans 5, um, in Paul's epistle, one of the things that Paul is trying to do uh, in Romans is to address the division uh, between Jews and Gentiles, Christian Jews um, from a, sorry, Christians from a Jewish background and Christians from a Gentile background. And he is making the argument that there is one people in Christ um, that all are sinful, that all have a need of a savior, um, all are shut up under sin and the condemnation of the law, and there's only one source of righteousness and justification, and that is faith in God's gospel. So as part of developing this argument, he brings out this uh, idea of the federal head, brings out this idea of all people being in Adam and needing a new representative, which is Jesus. Um, and so we have this contrast of the one and the one. This is the way that Paul describes it. And so the first one being Adam, the second one being Jesus. And through the disobedience of Adam, all have fallen into sin. Um, and then in Jesus, through his obedience, through his perfect act of righteousness, we have redemption, we have life. Um, so that is another way in which, a significant way in which we see the goodness of Jesus, and specifically the goodness of Jesus on our behalf. You know, we're making that connection again and again of, about um, the fruit of the Spirit and Jesus being the perfect fruit bearer on behalf of his people, that he first bears fruit perfectly for us and then purchases for us, if you will, the right to bear fruit and then sends the Spirit to work that in us. We see that here in Romans 5, right? That Paul, or sorry, that Jesus perfectly obeys, perfectly um, is good, and therefore, as our new representative, he sets us free to also have this moral quality of goodness. So the fourth thing we're going to look at um, quickly is this short statement, Jesus knew no sin. Paul puts it very clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it doesn't get any clearer than that, right? Jesus knew no sin. He was perfect morally in every single way. So that brings us then to goodness in the life of the Christian as we're spending all of our time doing some thinking and discussing together. Um, we, of course, have to recognize the struggle with sin in our life, right? When we think about bearing that fruit of goodness, we're all aware, we've all experienced that struggle with not being as good as we would like. We've all struggled with um, various sins, borne the weight of sin, the grief that comes with sin. Um, and that can be a great discouragement for us in our Christian life as we go along. Um, we can be plagued by um, those insufficiencies and it can breed um, division between us and the Lord, difficulty um, relating to the Lord. Um, it can breed uh, shame and guilt. Um, it can cause us to isolate from other believers. So this is a very real struggle that the believer has. And so we want to acknowledge that, of course, when we think about the fruit of goodness in the life of the Christian, that we would deny any sort of like perfectionism, that you become a Christian and then all of a sudden there is no sin in our life, um, that that's not a reality that we have to deal with. 
But um, we're going to look at a couple passages here um, where we see the true goodness in the heart of the believer. So um, if I read Romans 15, 14, could I get two people to uh, read Galatians 5.22 and Ephesians 5.9? I'll have, just raise your hand if you will read Galatians 5.22 for me, uh, Daniel. And would you mind reading Ephesians 5.9? Perfect. So, Romans 15, 14, Paul makes this statement. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. When I was studying this, um, I'll forget all these things here in a second, but that statement really grabbed my attention that he is able to say, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. So, uh, Daniel, I think you have Galatians 5.22. Do you read that, please? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and the next verse starts, gentleness and self-control. Sure. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So one of the things that really grabbed my attention as I was thinking about this is, and I'm going to be delicate here, but like, I think as Reformed Christians, we're really good about beating on the drum that man is sinful, that the wrath of God is justified, um, that God is holy and we are not. And I think those are all great things. There are biblical things. They're countercultural and, and broad evangelicalism um, in some sense today. So I'm glad that we waved that banner. Um, I think it's a very good thing. Um, I think that there's a sense in which we can be... Um, pessimists regarding the goodness of people, if you will. That there's not an optimism like we see. Um, so you, maybe you've heard that sermon by Bodie Bauckham a ways back where he's talking about the depravity of children and he calls them vipers and diapers. And I've heard that used in jest so many times. Like when my little niece was born, I think somebody who I won't mention uh, <laughs> used that descriptor of her. Like, oh, she's so cute with a little viper and a diaper, right? Like we want to uphold that, this, you know, the depravity of man, and that's true and that's good, but that can cause, I think, subtly, a, a way in which we view people, um, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Like this pessimism of like, I'm a sinner, and you're a sinner, and I have kind of that view of you. But then when you look at the way that Paul talks about that in Romans 15, and in Galatians and Ephesians, there's a certainty there that there's a, a real, true, objective goodness that is created in the heart and the life of the believer, right? He says, I am also convinced that you yourselves are somewhat good. No, he says, full of goodness, full of goodness. And then he says in Galatians, and Ephesians, that the fruit of the light, the fruit of the spirit in a believer's life is goodness. And I just blew me away that like, you know, we talk about that all the time of someday 
uh, will be glorified. Someday that this process, this messy process, this incomplete process of sanctification will come to a close and will be perfected and will be glorified. We long for that day. And in the meantime, we can feel like, okay, so I just have to be a loser here for 50 years and just struggle and, and not be good and be kind of like that Roman 7 constantly all my days. But there's a real sense that we should celebrate and be deeply encouraged by that there's a way in which I can look at each one of you and say, you're good. You're good in a way that you weren't before. That Daniel is a good man, that he has a heart full of goodness in a way that he wasn't before Christ. That Christ did that for him. He brought that about. He's working that in him. That's the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's what he's producing in us. And it's a profound. it was a profound shift for me. One, to relate to the Lord in that way of thanking him and, and resting in and you really are doing a work in my heart, and I really am changed in a significant way. And that's messy. Lord knows that's messy. But there's a, a real sense in which that is true, and that's deeply encouraging. And then it also is a shift for me in like viewing and interacting with the people around me and celebrating the goodness in other people and creating, if you will, an optimism in their sanctification. And so I found that to be deeply encouraging. It made me think of um, a quote that a wise man once said, that you are not Switzerland. Um, and that is Pastor Rick, like two months ago. And I remember that really standing out to me, that discussion of like our sanctification and that change of identity of like, you're not Switzerland, you're not neutral anymore. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have a new nature. You've been given a heart of flesh. Um, there's a real sense in which there's goodness in you. That is the fruit of the Spirit. So if nothing else this morning, I hope that that is an encouragement to you. So let's now get in groups. And I want to um, ask you guys these questions, let you discuss this a little bit. So if you can get in groups of three to five, um, we we'll give you a few minutes to kind of talk about some of these questions. We'll get together as a large group and hear um, some of your brilliant insights. So I'll give you a chance right now. Go ahead and move. Find three to five people around you. And we'll jump into these questions. So these are our questions. In your thought life, are you played by thoughts that God is disappointed with you? What effect does meditating on the truth that there is a true and spirit power of goodness within you have on your heart? How does the gospel transform the way we think about goodness in the Christian life? How does it challenge legalism or antinomianism? So, great.
happy with any time. Does it happen regularly, or is it something that like, uh, I guess it's not always consciously. You know, it's not like those, like, oh god, but it kind of feels like that, like, letting myself down, letting myself down. So, I guess, yeah, it can be like that underlying everything, even not the conscious thoughts, but it's going to be added. So, I think the next question helps us talk about what we do when we feel that way, right? Because I think all of us feel that way. And you should feel that way. If you don't feel that way, it might mean that you're not really listening to the spirit. It's telling you what you're saying. Right? Spirit convicts us of our sins. Right? What's the difference of condemns and convicts? Or I execute or condemn the way that the spirit that I think that What's that mean? I think that's a really important distinction because like if you realize okay God but then you can like move forward with that versus laying in bed for the rest of your life, breathing in money because God is always dependent on you and there's nothing, there's no hope, there's no salvation, there's no, you know what I mean? Like, you're just going to stay in that closet and be yourself with a whip because that's, you know what I mean? Like, it, it can be. Yeah, there's, there's lots of Christians that really struggle with this. And they never have that feeling of assurance that God is truly going to save them because they feel so guilty about their sins. That they they become plagued by it. Martin Luther was one who wrote the 95 Thesis we talked about last week, right? He was a major person that God used to reform the church. But Martin Luther was an ideal person to think about. He literally would go into the room like he was because he felt so guilty about the things that he had done with sin. And he couldn't fix it on his own. Well, I'm going to try it with better. I do want to dress you better, but like, see yourself what God sees you. And then, of course, God's in the guilt of this. No, you can never be the righteousness of Christ, which is always perfect, even though I fail. And so, even though I want to turn from that sin and do better, I need to always be drawn back to the cross as the basis of my relationship with God. Well, See, that's what the second, you know, what effect does meditating on the truth of God's word when you cease 
one thing. Condemning me not speaking the truth, but lying to you. So you can feel that way yeah. and being condemned I mean, it's, for it's, it's encouraging like, if you if you see that you're life. convicted of your no sin. Loves me. If you that see that you're actually struggling against it, it's like overwhelming. I wouldn't be doing this on my own. Right. The truth. Which is encouraging. God's that is where meditating on God's word, not just on the wrath that God promises for those who are sinners, but on the salvation that we have in Jesus, that is what empowers you to get goodness in your heart because that's the, how the Spirit works in us, right? Spirit bears fruit, and we become like Christ because the Spirit bears fruit through us. We're instruments that God has used to show His goodness. And so that's that's how you move away from just being condemned to being convicted and then beginning to live a righteous life through the power of Christ, through the Holy Spirit. I think that the like, bottom part has 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 to to transform the way we think about the goodness of, in the Christian life. So how does it, and what, what the questions that they put to that is, how does that challenge legalism? So what's legalism? So legalism is like a hyper-focus on the world. Can you guys think, like, Carver, we've talked about a lot of religions, and we've talked about legalism in those religions. Legalism is the way people try to get to salvation. But they do it through legalism. Can you guys think of how would you explain what legalism is? And then antinomianism is a hyper-fixation on work, race. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so it's like a set of rules you have to follow in order to be saved. Yeah, so a lot of those, like, or in order to be righteous, or to get goodness. Jesus, 
what are some of the, your initial thoughts of how that strikes your, your heart and your mind? How do you react when you hear that? Does it make zero difference at all? Make any difference? It's all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. It really does. I mean, especially if you think about, you know, we were, we were talking about how the, on the first point it could be the Spirit convicting you, but it also could be Satan condemning you. And especially if Satan is condemning you, you know, you have no path forward, you know, because he's, he's not bringing you to salvation. He's wanting to bury you. So you have to meditate on God's Word so that you see what's truly true, what God has really said, who God really is. And, and we just can't fathom how great God is. And so therefore we struggle with how can you be so gracious or so loving or, you know, it just doesn't make, that's not us. You know, so we need His Word constantly informing us what's truly true and not just what we're thinking is true or feeling is true. So. Yeah. Any thoughts? I think one of, one of the effects that that has for us, like he was just saying, is like it changes your framework so that you relate to God and deal with those things in his presence. You know, instead of shrinking away under the weight of condemnation that God is, has condemned me, that I'm not good enough, meditating on that of like, no, this is what Christ has done in me. This is what he's formed in me. This is the objective reality that we see in Scripture. It allows you to deal with the conviction, which is a personal thing with the Spirit, a personal thing with the Lord, of like dealing with those things of like, these things wound me, they grieve my spirit, because you're convicting me, because you've made me good, because you've given me a new heart, and invites you into dealing with those things with him, rather than shrinking away. So it can, it's such a foundational shift. It's so, so important. Um, some thoughts on the gospel and that reality that we're talking about and then dealing with legalism and antinomianism there's just a small footnote, it's so fun to just sit and watch older saints walk through those terms with littler saints, you know like that's just one of the beauties of the church so I heard some explaining going on um, and some of those groups didn't quite get the chance to flesh out that question, so I'll give you a chance to do that kind of in a large group. How how does that change the way you interact with the legalism or the antinomianism? One of the things that I was saying in our group had to do with no matter how deeply we know that we are saved by grace, sometimes as humans, we just lean into like, I have to do it right though. Like I have to justify myself or my works have to be good. And so when I fail, it, it's like, I need to do better. And I think that I lean that way fairly often. And so it's very challenging to me that like, there's the spirit is doing this within me. It's not something that I'm doing, it's something that the spirit is doing. But I strive for control so much. It's like, no, I have to be good. I have to do it. And so I think knowing that there's a true and spirit-empowered goodness within me balances legalism and antinomianism to where it's supposed to be, where the grace of God is active 
and the Spirit is making my works good, I want to continue on. But I still fight those thoughts of legalism. Abound, or, um, or other passages similar of just that um, in a true believer there is an affection for Christ that does motivate goodness that it is not out of self-preservation it's not out of um, currency trying to win spiritual currency but of a true desire uh, and that doesn't make sense to the unbeliever, which is why Christians are constantly accused of having a critical, you know, moral system. They're like, oh, you, God forgives you, so you can just do whatever you want. I hear that all the time. But um, it's just a, it's a motivation that is foreign uh, to unbelievers of truly loving God, um, you know, because he loved us first. And then that is the fuel for our goodness. Okay, let's keep moving. Always the time constraint. Okay, the believer is to think on what is good. So let's um, raise your hand if you'd like to read Isaiah 5:20, please. Noah, uh, Romans 12:2, and Philippians 4:8. Isaiah 5.20 Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So one of the things that we see clearly in the Bible is that having created that goodness in the heart of the believer, we're then called to think on things that are good, not things that are evil, not to twist things like in Isaiah 5.20, not to twist uh, good things um, and evil things or to conflate the two categories, but to think the way that God thinks, to call what God calls good, good, and call what God calls evil, evil, to meditate on those things, to think on those things. So as you think about that reality of our thinking, the importance, the calling for us to think on what is good, what is morally pleasing, um, that which God has called us to think about, um, let's think about this together. What are some of the challenges that a modern Christian faces in thinking about what is good? And how should we think about content consumption, for example? And then let's think a little bit about how Christians should think about Christian liberty and charity with people who don't come to the same conclusions on interacting with those things. So I'll give you five minutes.
or less. So guys, how do you define what is good today? I mean, there's, there's no way to avoid legalism is not being hit by right things that are not. How do we know it's good? I mean, it's just like it's just all oh. around you. I mean, it seems like that's yeah, God's word really prevalent in our society. I mean, I'm sure like speaking of sorry, you know, first century Corinth was probably very difficult to just go do your shopping and be like confronted with all sorts of things too. But it seems like in our very visual age, it's just like there's just so much. So it's through like laws in the Bible or it's, like it's the like, Constitution. You know, I mean, I guess that that's one of the reasons why you know monasticism. You know, have have an appeal. What's that? Definition. Uh, Sorry, the idea of no, I'm just of saying, putting the yourself away in a building where you interact with and so one of the simple ways to build it, right? I'll define Well, yeah, and it's almost like evilism within target things too. That's true. It's, yeah. um, we're gonna deal with that, so it's like you know, like um, as long as we're a little bit better than, than the worst things that are out there, then that's probably. I think it's kind of how a lot of people think. Rather than like, well, it's just always. You know, I didn't murder anybody today. <laughs> so that's good enough. You know. Do your parents like have any restrictions on what you watch or like what you spend time doing? Christopher, the only thing I would challenge you on is there's an aspect, like, if you think outside of the Bible and think of, you know, our laws in the, in the country, you said that those define what is good, right? Yes, those are some of the things that these are Yeah, but there's, if you break one of those laws, does that mean that you're justifiable evil? No, okay. not. It doesn't mean you're evil, but you have done not, you are not. Evil. So, you so <laughs> let's think about something like this. Like this is just a, a good philosophical question for you guys to consider. If chewing bubble gum is made illegal in our country, but you go to Mexico and you're allowed to chew bubble gum there, is it huge? <laughs> but it is equal to doing it. It's philosophical. That's why I'm challenging you to think about that because it's because that's what we call it. Actually, that I mean, Lakey is bubblegum, but it's actually something that like is a real. So technically, it is committed to the simplest way I can break up. Let's come back together. Throw some things out at me, some of the challenges the modern Christian faces. 
the Bible isn't a source of truth anymore. So we have a groundless base to agree on to begin with for a lot of Christians. Well, and I would say from the world's perspective, truth or good is relative. Yeah, I think from Christians' perspectives, good is relative. Exactly. Yeah. And then the question becomes, when are you not Christian anymore? But like, that, that's that's not something you can just judge based on. Everyone in this church is no longer a Christian, right? But like, there are definitely churches that will tell you the Bible is not the source of truth. So how do you define good if the Bible is not a foundation? So I think that's that's the greatest challenge in our society. A couple of other rapid fire answers. Maybe even when you you have access to you know the, the scriptures and you and you're in a place where you're getting good stuff on what is good, you're still interacting with the world that's just throwing all sorts of stuff at you. And to focus on the things that you know and that you're exposed to when you get all this other stuff coming at you is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One more quick answer. Constantly being told that you are the bad guy, you what you say is bad and harmful and hateful. Those called darkness, light, and mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, how how should we think about content consumption? This is a terrible question to do rapid fire on, but we have to. It should be approached with more care than mm-hmm. most people do. Mm-hmm. How, how should we think about Christian liberty and charity then? Because not. So like some people are going to look at that and go, gosh, there's, as I heard you talk about, it's hard to watch anything anywhere without something being in it. And so some people just go, no social media, no movies ever, it's off the table, it's all evil, can't let Satan into my house, etc. right? And then some people are like, well, I can interact with that and think biblically about those things, so you have a spectrum. So how would, how would we think about how we interact with that idea of showing liberty and charity with those we disagree with? I think about Romans, and this has been helpful for me. It's kind of a one, it doesn't, I mean, for being concise, it's going to be kind of one-sided, but that idea of who are you to judge another man's servant to his own master, he stands or falls, yea, he shall be holding up, um, for God is able to help him stand. The idea that, you know, um, we are personally going to be held responsible for ourselves, not for other people. Um, and so if um, we... Um, Trying to be so concise. Uh, we ourselves, you know, if we you know go against our conscience and do things that we believe are wrong, you know that is sinful, um, and we should you know encourage other believers to be sanctified and holy. But ultimately, we, even if they choose to do something that we disagree with, there is no sin on our part. But we can sit against them if we are judging them unnecessarily, if we are uh, holding them to. Um, um, laws that aren't in scripture um, and so just trying to be careful of that of recognizing well actually even even if they're in the wrong I can still be in the right and before God and so, and so exhort one another in love but mm-hmm. not be the judge of another mm-hmm. yeah. yeah Just I was skimming the Westminster Confession to kind of refresh myself on like what we mean by Christian liberty and there's a tightrope there of not imposing on thing on people's consciences that which is not of the scriptures so think what is uh, what is good and worldly, right, upstanding and right. That's from the scriptures. But then, like when you get into particulars about a certain movie, we have to move real slow 
mm-hmm. on like, thou shalt not watch Disney, not in the Bible. So you gotta be real careful, right, on, on your speed zone. And the other end of that is we can't use Christian liberty as a grounds for um, licentiousness, that we do whatever we want while mm-hmm. Christian liberty. That we also have to make sure that what we are, when we're thinking through those things, we're upholding our actions and our thoughts to the line of scripture. Okay. Um, I don't wanna go past that. Romans 12, 21, would somebody please read that? Would uh, raise your hand if you'll read that for me, please? Chase, would you mind reading that? Yeah. Um, Pastor Rick, would you mind reading Galatians 6.10 for me? Sure. And Noel, would you mind reading Romans 12.9? Romans 12.21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So we see this idea that we are to do good, right? Out of that that new heart, that new creation, we're to do good things, because that's that moral quality. So what are some examples of doing what is good? Um, Let's spend... Our focus, let's just do this large group, actually, time-wise. What is the relationship between doing good to others and kindness? Let's focus on that one. How are they different? How are they alike? Noah talked about doing acts of kindness last week. Is this the exact same thing? Are are they just interchangeable terms? Are they slightly different? Kindness has more of the connotation of it being positive and encouraging um, and good, and it more has the idea of it's morally true and upright. So they're, they're not contradictory at all, um, but sometimes being good, I mean, it is still kind, but it, it doesn't, yeah, I try to, it's hard to, hard to say, but doing what is good can feel unkind to other people, even if it is kind. Um, but they're they're definitely not uh, mutually exclusive at all. Yeah, I think. I was just gonna say, like, I think an example of like discipline, disciplining your children is good, mm-hmm. but maybe it doesn't have that kind, kind um, but it's still for their good, and it's still being good to them, even if it's not perceived as kindness, which like. I was thinking about like goodness being <coughs> goodness is like an objective reality, right? You know, um, something that is good in God's sight or good as opposed to bad. And then like the act of doing good to others, I would say is very closely related with kindness. That's kind of what we talked about last week. Because, you know, like in the Greek, that's what the word kindness means, is to do good to other people. And, and Rick made that point last week too, that, you know, kind of like they were saying, uh, kindness does not, is not always perceived, somebody would always perceive that as kindness, but it, it's doing what is good for their sake, even if they don't want it, but it's for the sake of other people. So it's like, just like love or kindness is kind of the sixth, like practical expression of love, that doing good and kindness in the same way, you could say that like, it's a it's an outworking of goodness, you know, it's Christ's first goodness in us, then the act of doing, of kindness is doing good to other people that flows out of that. What would it look like practically to cling to what is good? 
Give time for one one quick answer. One brave soul. To love the Lord and His Word and to do it. I saw um, a little reel like a couple weeks ago, and it was you know satirical, but he said if we treated what what if we treated our Bibles that we treated our phones. And had him like waking up first thing, his one goes off, he rolls over and scrolls through his Bible. And he's like walking and like looking at his Bible. And he's just doing all these activities where like, or like, you know, at the time he's sitting down waiting for something, he's reading his Bible. And it's just kind of a funny little video, but it does make me stop and think a little bit about like how much I'm interacting with the Word of God versus interacting with Instagram, for example, where you have just that blurry, that fountain of a spectrum of things, some perfectly benign and then some things um, repulsive and morally wrong. And so it does, when we're thinking about clinging to what is good, clinging to his truth, clinging to the Lord, relating uh, to the Lord throughout the day, trying to keep our actions in line with his word. A couple more questions. Uh, specifically, yeah, they're both good. And of course, I'm at the end. How may we, may we think about this command as... Um, when we think about fulfilling that command to do good, when we think about it corporately versus individually, um, how would we think about that? You're to do good to all, especially of the household of faith. Um, so. Loving God, loving others. It does expand our perspective in life, you know, instead of just about me and my household or what, you know, we always think of everything in terms of how it relates to me. I'm the center of everything. And when we think of goodness in this way, all of a sudden God's the center and we're thinking about other people and stuff. So. Somebody read Third John for us. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers of the truth. So I'll just throw this out here for the sake of time. There's a sense in which we're given a, a circle of responsibility to do good to people, right? We have immediate family and friends, people that are within our circle. And so we're, we can do good to them every single day. And then there's a sense in which we partner with the larger corporate church in doing good on a larger scale, right? So um, when John writes this letter and he says, we ought to partner in supporting missionaries who go out, we ought to support them, give them the means that they need to carry out their work. And he has that interesting phrase, so that we will be fellow workers with them. Well, I'm not going where they're going. I'm not talking to people that they're going to. But my supporting them, in a sense, I am partnering with them in the work that they're doing, and I'm doing good. So like uh, Pastor Rick is saying, we can do things on a larger scale through like the PCA or other larger organizations. We can do good on a larger scale. That's one of the beauties of the corporate church. Um, and last thing, how does one's vocation interface with this imperative to do good? Wow, I can't read. How does one's vocation interface with this imperative to do good to others? And I'll just quickly answer it for us because we're out of time. Um, one of the things that was really helpful for me when I transitioned, I was at Central, I was teaching kids um, full time as a new Christian, not a good idea to be on staff, but whatever. And there's this real sense of like, I'm doing the Lord's work as a young Christian, right? Like I'm in the church, I'm teaching people's word, like how much more spiritual a work can you get? 
And then I transitioned to working construction, completely different, right? And I really struggled existentially with like, am I wasting my life? To go from what I was doing before to doing like, you know, picking up trash all day or, you know, painting or whatever. It's like, gosh, this just doesn't feel like I'm doing a heavenly work. And one of the things that really helped me was discovering Luther's doctrine of vocation. And he has this brilliant thing where he talks about how we pray the Lord's Prayer. And we say every day, um, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. But we don't pray that prayer and go out on the front um, porch or front steps of our house, look up in the sky and open our mouths like baby birds and have manna drop down our goals from heaven, right? That's not how that works. How does that work? How does God fulfill his promise to give us our daily bread? Well, he doesn't do the farmer. He doesn't do the truck driver. He doesn't do the guy working, stocking the grocery stores, right? He doesn't do the mama baking the bread. All these people have a vocation. They have a daily work. And that daily work is part of God's larger providence to do good to creation, to sustain creation. So as you go about your various tasks this week and you do your mundane activities that feel like they're inconsequential, please remember that, that, that you are doing good to others no matter how insignificant that may feel, you're participating in God's larger work of doing good to others. And that's of heavenly importance to serve one another, even in these small things. So, um, last encouragement for you, I just want to remind you that the good shepherd is working good in you. That he is good, he has perfectly born that fruit of goodness, um, he has lived that perfect life of obedience on your behalf. He is your new federal head, and you are a new creature in him. And he is determined, it is his joy and his determination to continue to sanctify you, to work good in you. And he is, just like when you have that, that kid that brings that messy drawing to their parents, says, look what I made, and it doesn't look like anything you would see in a museum, but that parent still delights in it. Your efforts at being obedient and growing in sanctification is pleasing to him. That's what he came to do, to secure that for you, to work that in you, and he delights in seeing you grow in that. So be encouraged by that. Um, last thought, if you want a helpful exercise in your moments of discouragement, go home and write down 10 things, or more, 10 things that the Holy Spirit has done in your life as a Christian, like 10 evidences of conversion in your life. And, and think about that, that the, those are real changes the Lord has brought about in your life. Um, let me pray for us, and I'll get you out of here. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you just so much for your love to us when we were yet your enemies, uh, when we had hearts of flesh and we were hostile to you and to your law, that you had mercy on us and that you extended grace to us, um, that you have created in us new hearts, new natures, that love what is good and abhor what is evil. And please help us, Lord, as we struggle to work that out, to grow in obedience, to grow in grace. Help us to rest in your gospel, to rest um, in your work and your power. Um, and also please empower us um, to continue to grow and to bear that fruit for your glory um, and for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.